So this Advent season, I've paused from Ephesians that we might tune our hearts to the advents of Christ, the advents of Jesus. For millennia, the church has celebrated two advents, the first advent being the incarnation of Christ. We looked at that last week where Jesus, God himself, came into this world through a teenage womb in an incredible display, an incredible miracle, maybe the greatest of all time. And that's what we obviously celebrate at Christmas time, the birth of Christ. But rightly, the church has also said it's not just about a baby Jesus, it's about King Jesus. And that King who has ascended is also returning, and that's his promise. That's the second advent, and advent simply means arrival, coming. His second advent is not yet fulfilled. We still live in the same age as the church throughout the millennia. And so rightly, we're between the advents, and we recognize both. And we celebrate his return. Well, there is a third Advent that I want us to focus on. And that will be next week. The Advent, the arrival of Jesus in Judea. When he came to the River Jordan and was baptized by John the Baptist. That arrival, and therefore subsequently the arrival of the Holy Spirit as it came upon him in power, inaugurated three years of life and mission and ministry that would change the world. Three years that would change all history. And so I want us to focus on that because that is vital for how we live a life meant to be empowered by the same Spirit to the same mission. That's next week. This morning we fix our eyes on that traditionally second advent, the return of Christ, the promise and what that means, the return of our King, our greatest hope, our reason for living with urgency. Our Christology determines our missiology. Do you miss last week? That just sounds like confusion in big words. I'm not going to rehash that whole thing because I'm not sure I did it correctly anyway. But our Christology determines our missiology, which therefore determines our ecclesiology. Very quickly, who Christ is, Christology, what we know of him, what we come to know of him and understand of him is first, vital, most important. Because of that, therefore, we have a mission, a purpose. He has sent us. And we'll see that very clearly this morning. And with that same mission then comes the church. The church is simply the gathering. That's ecclesia in the Greek. The gathering, the assembly. Because of who Christ is, the mission he has come to inaugurate sends us on. Therefore, there is a church. There is a gathering. That's why we are here. Is it why you are here? Because we need one another for encouragement, for reminder, for hope. And we can do so much more one to another as we serve and fulfill the mission. And we get that from Jesus. Jesus commences our mission with his final words on earth. Acts 1, 8 and following, he says, he promises to all of his followers, those who had continued to trust him now after his resurrection, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We have an Acts 1-8 mission, mandate, commission. It's local, it's regional, and it's global in its scope because of the words of Christ, his final words. Better pay attention. This is what it did for the first disciples. They were transformed in their missiology because of who Christ was and now what he has commissioned them to do. We see this radical transformation happen after his resurrection. 
Here's a snapshot of that transformation. Luke 24, verse 50 and following. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. So he's risen. He's now appeared to the disciples. He's in his final days with them. In fact, this will lead into this final moments as well as Luke describes it in Luke, not in Acts. He led, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So same author, Luke, describing it just from a slightly different angle. And then verse 52, and they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That is such a transformation. Really, if you read through the Gospels, every time that Jesus hinted at his crucifixion, his subsequent resurrection was always attached to it, and then his ascension and the giving of the Spirit, every time he taught on that, and he taught on it repeatedly, the disciples tended to deny it, reject him, doubt it. Even Peter famously saying, Never, Lord, may it not be. And Jesus rebuked him. They were filled with fear, uncertainty, trepidation at the thought that he would leave them. What a transformation. Now he actually leaves them and they are worshipful and they are filled with joy and they return with purpose because now everything that Jesus has spoken, all of his promises have been fulfilled and they take him now at his word. Their eyes have been opened. They now believe him in his promise that if if he could die and rise again, just as he said, and now he has ascended in our midst, just as he said, what was next? The giving of the Holy Spirit. So they went with purpose. The Spirit is coming, intentional waiting upon him, knowing that he has now sent them. In the same way that God the Father sent him, Jesus said, now I am sending you, and I will return. And so they lived with this promise. They lived with this hope. They also came to at least have a joy that Jesus got to return to the Father, his true home. They started to get it, and they rejoiced with him. What a transformation. The first time we see them collectively worshiping Jesus as God, the first time we see them collectively filled with joy, even though Jesus had departed from them. It's a very striking transformation that has taken place as they've come to now see the true Jesus, their true Lord, Savior, and King, risen, now ascended. They are filled with this purpose to wait for the Spirit their Christology is now crystallizing and it's influencing their missiology and then their ecclesiology. They return to Jerusalem. They gather together. Imagine what that gathering was like as they called upon God with purpose. He didn't say when the Spirit would come. He just said, wait, it will be poured out. So they sought Him. They were ready to receive. Ultimately, the Spirit would be poured out among them in a powerful way. That's Acts 2. And the rest is history. Christ is in heaven. So vital that we understand that. We, don't, we haven't lost Him. We just celebrated the life of my grandmother yesterday. And, and a few times I heard people use that maybe common language of, I'm so sorry for your loss. And you can be tongue-in-cheek about it, but it is important to, to get our theology right. Grandma is not lost. Her soul is found. And we know exactly where she is. Now, by loss, the loss of, of our experience with her in relationship, of course. But let's rightly understand that she is not lost. She's more found than ever. And so we, too, have that same hope as we think of where Jesus is. We have not lost him. Imagine if he didn't 
ascend in that way. And he just started to kind of fade. Less and less appear to the disciples until he appeared no more. They might still be looking for him to this day. And many maybe would claim to have, have him in their midst. And yet his ascension is so vital. So we recognize not only where he is, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and ruling and reigning over all things as king. But the promise that we are given at the ascension, that all the disciples were given by the angels who then appeared, is where our hope and our foundation is today. The angel said, in the same way Jesus will return. This is verse 10 and 11. While they, the disciples, were still gazing up into heaven... And I imagine they're just in wonder and awe, even though he's been hidden by the clouds. They're wondering what's happening next. Maybe they were even in that moment waiting for some powerful outpouring, supernaturally, spiritually, of the Spirit. So they're longing, they're looking, they're waiting, they're in awe. These men dressed in white robes, which tends to be the, the style in those days, the um, forever style of the angels. And they said to the men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. So stop looking up. You've got work to do. Look out. But know this. Christ will return in this same way. Amongst other things, at least three things, we can say, okay, He will return visibly because visibly He ascended. They saw Him go and then be concealed by the cloud so visibly he will return suddenly because he was still speaking with them when he ascended that was pretty sudden so he will return if it's the same way he will return visibly suddenly and with blessing because he was blessing them while he ascended so at least those three things we can say are in the same way of his ascension we can hope for his return daniel the prophecy of daniel in daniel 7 13 Daniel was given a glimpse of of this time when Jesus would return. Even before he first came, he's given a glimpse of his second coming. Daniel records this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Just as he was concealed by the clouds, the, the vision is with the clouds, he returns. In Revelation, the very last vision given to John, the last book in the Bible, was the same word is mentioned, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So that theme of clouds is so striking to me. It's how we know that Jesus will return to Seattle, the cloudiest city in the world. At least someone can hope, right? But we're promised we won't miss it. Wherever he returns on earth in a visible way, none will miss it. It will be visible. So there will be no wondering. How that is accomplished has been questioned throughout history. How will it be known? Well, the more and more we move into the age of technology, the more and more that becomes obvious. If he returns on the clouds anywhere, it will be such a sight. And this is what Matthew says in his uh, vision of the return Matthew 24:27 as the lightning comes from the east shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the son of man it will not be missed it will be such an event that anyone with that device in their pocket will pull it out and take video and it will be seen almost instantaneously around the world now he can do it God can do it however he wants he can, doesn't need to use technology 
but now we start to understand, whoa, as we come into a new age, even the fulfillment of what has been written thousands of years ago starts to take greater clarity. What remained in mystery for most of the church throughout its millennia, and they certainly worship God for that. We take you at your word. We don't know how that will be possible, but we take you at your word. We now are in an age that says, oh, awareness is growing. Understanding is becoming more clear. And the signs of the times seem to be more and more urgent. His return will be visible. It will be sudden. Because just as he was still speaking with them, he ascended suddenly. The phrase that Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John all use, they are all in common with this phrase, he will come like a thief in the night. Unexpected, unknown, with somewhat uncertainty and maybe even terror. Mark 13, 32 Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son. There's one of the strongest glimpses of Jesus walking in his humanity, trusting in the Holy Spirit. Could Jesus as God have chosen to have that knowledge? Of course. But he deferred his divinity while on earth to trust in and follow the Spirit as a model for all who would come after him. So he said, it hasn't even been revealed to me I hold that in faith in God the Father and His timing. A very striking, and we could go into a rabbit trail there, but very striking example of Jesus' humanity as He walks in divinity. Not even the Son knows, only the Father. So, therefore, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come, lest He come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It's kind of been the call throughout the ages to the church. Awakening. Awake. That picture of the disciples in that garden with Jesus the night before his crucifixion, when he just says, stay awake and pray with me. And he finds them again and again asleep. What a picture of the church throughout history. Is it the reality of us today when we've been told, stay awake and alert. I am coming soon and suddenly The early church seemed to live with that. And then as ages went on and we recognized, okay, our understanding of soon is different than God's and that's okay, but have we become sleepy as a church? Do we need to wake up? Paul says in Ephesians 5, wake, oh oh, sleeper, awake, and Christ will shine on you. The same call to the church today, wake up. So Jesus will come visibly. It will be sudden, unexpected, So no need to follow the every once in a while crazes of Jesus is returning this year or on this date or at this time because we've read the signs and we've got it. Not true. We are called to read the signs and look to be alert, but no one will know the day or the hour. We may sense we are getting closer, but it will be sudden just as he ascended suddenly. And third, he comes with blessing. Because while he was still blessing them, Luke 24, 51 while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up. I think in two, two, two powerful implications to that. One, he, his blessings and his prayers for his church will continue for all time. As he's blessing them, he's ascended. And second, he will come in the same way. He will come on the clouds, riding on that horse as a king. Not that donkey, that lowly donkey, but that horse horse, that stallion, and a sword will come from his mouth. It's a pretty remarkable, powerful picture of our king and judge coming to earth. 
and he will come with blessing. There will be judgment for the world, but he comes with blessing. I see him with outstretched arms for his people. He is coming to them to fulfill all things. He will come visibly, he will come suddenly, and he will come with blessing. This is our hope, and it's our right longing, especially at the Christmas time, to recognize that we live between the advents of Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 20, 21 and following. Not a very Christmassy passage traditionally, but rightly when we start to see it this way, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful Christmas passage. Paul says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. This is that future hope. And it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a sense of an already but not yet to the promises of God throughout Scripture. We have an already experience because Christ has come and the Spirit is with us, but we have a not yet full. And this is part of our reasoning and longing for the longest night, the darkest night service. By the way, we didn't come up with that. Many throughout ages have been celebrating a longest night vigil or prayer gathering or a lamentation service. So we lean into that tradition and do it in a Union Hill way, but with the people of God, we lean into that idea of longing of ache, of not yet realized. And I can look through the room and I know each one of you has pain and loss. And it's often heightened in the Christmas time because it'll never, whatever was lost, it will never be again. And so there's this struggle between the... But there is still joy and hope. And I can see it. If I tune my mind right, and I, I see it. And I can rejoice with others in times of abundance. And yet... What I long for will never yet be. Not on this life. And that's where we turn our gaze to our eternal home. And through that still pain that we don't ignore, that we embrace, we then celebrate with hope and longing. And we don't put our hope into earthly things, but because they are transient, we put our hope into the eternal things. That's the weight of glory that we long to receive. So I, we invite you again to that longest night service for a few minutes, for the whole time, to pray personally. Even if you come to pray on behalf of, my guess is you will be stirred and recognize broken and hurt and longing that Jesus has promised to comfort in. His promise is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The promise isn't, he will return to you everything that was lost. The promise is comfort in the midst of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. So come. Because King Jesus is coming. And since He is coming visibly and suddenly, we might not continue to stand and look up to the clouds. We're not very effective that way. We might be more ready, but we're not very effective. So as we keep our minds set on that promise, knowing we won't miss it, we set our eyes on the world He has now sent us into. That He's commissioned us in a mission and His purpose to continue. Just as He came, we are being sent. This is Acts 1.7. So backing up one verse, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. So don't be consumed by that. 
And then he says, verse 8, which we know you will receive power in the Holy Spirit. That's your focus. Wait on him. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He commences our mission. He clarifies it. Our Christology determines our missiology. So the Holy Spirit has now come, continues to come and empower his church. If Jesus' first words for his disciples were, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. With his last words, he is saying, now go, you are ready. And likely they would say, no, we're not. Just as we often say, I am not ready. I need to learn more. I need to know more. I need to be a better person first before I start to go proclaim the greatest person because I'm supposed to be associated with him and I am nowhere close to that. So I'll just wait a little bit more. He says, no, you are ready. Go. And as you go and as you live in the power of the Spirit, you will be equipped more and more. You will stumble. You will fail. Come back to me. I am your source. I will recommission. And it becomes a cyclical pattern of our life. In fact, some of the most powerful missionaries and evangelists and testimonies have come from the most unlikely of places. The weakest, the most outcast, the the most marginalized, the ones that don't have the education or the degrees or the knowledge, but what they do know is Jesus has met them and transformed their life and sent them on the mission to proclaim the very same thing into the same places where he reached to them. We have been sent. We don't need to pray, God, send us. We need to pray, God, open my eyes to how you have already sent me. The only way to follow Jesus is to follow him as a missionary. Because if we are going to be like him, we must embrace his missiology. It's who he is at his very core. So he sends us. We need to dissect, and for many this will just be a reminder. For some, maybe it's new. When he says, you will be my disciples and witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The only one that might make sense to us is the ends of the earth. Okay, that's some far-reaching places. But we don't live in Jerusalem. We're not in Judea, if we even know what that is. And what is Samaria? Where and who? So we need to understand from their context, they were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their central hub for commerce and for worship. Most of them didn't live in the city walls, but that was home city for them. So when he says to those disciples, you're going to be my witnesses first right here, right where you now live, right where you are already planted and doing life and business. I've already sent you. You will be my witnesses right there. A good place to start. So if we receive this commission, where are you already planted? Where do you live? What is your neighborhood? Where do you work? Where do you study or learn? Where are you in community? Where do you play? Where is leisure and rest or hobbies? You're already planted in, we would call, fields. Because we like that greenhouse language. If we're like a greenhouse, you've also been planted into fields for harvest and for multiplication. So right where you're at, start there. Start looking for the opportunities to proclaim the hope of the gospel, the light of life. And it can be through simple things like an invitation. Come with me to this concert thing that my pastor says is going to be pretty good, but I don't know. Or it can be more deep and rich. Come to my table. After this service that my church is doing, and maybe you would come with me. I think it's going to be pretty good, but don't worry about that. We're having a, a soup dinner at my house. And if you don't have a place or if you don't have a Christmas Eve tradition, I mean, don't change your plans if you already have them. But if you don't, come over. I'd love to have you at our table. Be missionaries right where you are. 
planted already. That's your Jerusalem. Jerusalem was also the city. Most of them didn't live in the city, just like most of you don't live in the city, either Seattle or Redmond. You live around it. But Jesus loved the city. In and out of the city, in and through the temple, constantly amongst people. He also moved through the countryside as well. But he wept over the city. The only glimpse of uh, we see of him weeping over a people is over the city, the city of Jerusalem. He longed to restore them and redeem them and see them saved. Do we weep over our city? Or do we just try to distance ourselves from it? Whatever you would attach to the city with its movements, its culture, its beliefs, its uh, social customs that are seemingly ever-changing and moving, that are messy and uncertain. Is there even fear? And so we distance and we move ourselves. That's not the ministry of Jesus. He sends us into to be present to incarnate, to live amongst, even as a people, and to weep over and pray for the loss, the hurting, and the brokenness that exists around us. Where is your Jerusalem? Your Jerusalem may also be your extended family. That's a place you've been planted. Along with your neighborhood and your workplace, you have extended family. This time of year, often many of us are gathering with those extended family. You know, being missionaries, proclaimers of the gospel in our Jerusalems, may be the hardest place. Because as we start to speak out with boldness or more boldness, and we're going to see those people again and again and again. And they're going to be looking for life change in us. Something that authenticates this message of hope and life and transformation that Jesus has promised. If we're communicating that, now they're watching. Oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Maybe it'd be easier just to to, to, to go on a, a short-term mission trip across the ocean and then preach boldly over there and then I get to come back here and kind of just go through life and routine. We've been first sent into our Jerusalem. That's our first commission. To be missionaries may mean we never go beyond it. Jesus is speaking, there is a sense of be, beyond that we must be aware of, but he's also planted us right here. To serve and to use us. We are, I'm so excited about this coming season in 2020 uh, with the resources we have been given. The elders have been wrestling. How do we first steward? And you know, if you know anything about how we give here, we tithe. Everything that comes in, we, I mean, well, that's where we start. And I, just everything that comes in, we start with 10%, make sure that 10% is going out of these walls to hurting people locally, regionally, globally. Partner And those missions and ministries change as time goes on, but we're always starting there. And in 10 years, I don't think we've given less than 20% a year to those kinds of ministries. Thank you for your generosity. This year in 2020, we've said, okay, we want to be an we want to really center on our Acts 1-8 mission. Can we identify missionaries or ministries in each of those four areas? Our Jerusalem, kind of right here. Our Judea, the surrounding region or the broader region, our Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we believe we have. And we're going to partner with some missionaries at $1,000 a month in all four of those areas for the whole year. Okay, you do some math. That's nearly $50,000 that's going to go out of these walls from the top. Right from the top. From there under, we say, what else do we believe God has given us to steward? And we believe it's much And we want to steward that faithfully for the ministries right here that we can continue to gather and worship, empowering leaders, raising leaders, 
supporting salaries, caring for a facility. So all of that's wise stewardship, but we're starting with our first fruits to the mission of God, the mission of Christ in Acts 1.8. So if you give anything here, know that you're joining us with that. And if you don't like that, don't give here. Find other places. Because we are committed to the mission of Jesus first. If you do resonate with that, start giving generously if you're not. Some of you already are. And I just encourage you to lean into kingdom partnerships. And I can share so much more because the ins and out of that, we're an open book church. We don't publicize it on a wall every Sunday for you to come and read. But if you want to see the way we steward resources, we'd be happy to share because we think God is doing great things and it's worth giving testimony to. So one of the things, starting with our Jerusalem, we're partnering with the Englands, Dwight and Mary, who have a calling into a neighborhood, the Ardmore neighborhood, it's about a thousand people, to open up their homes, to gather believers from all different churches that live in that neighborhood for the ministry of the gospel to the lost and hurting and broken in their neighborhood. And they're sacrificing significantly to do that in contextual, missionary-like ways. Also, 40 years of history of pastoral ministry, of consulting, of coaching, of training, of being really Jesus with skin on, authenticates this mission, and we just want to join them in it, champion them, glean what we can, pray with them. Maybe all, some of us, as we get close to that idea, will say, why can't I do the same thing? Amen to that. So that's starting with our Jerusalem. Our Judea, when Jesus says you will be missionaries in Judea, for them that was the surrounding region, maybe a 20 or 30 mile kind of radius. Consider a day's walk, a day's travel was kind of their region. The the people of Judah were given this land. It was the promised land at one time. And so they were being sent to their own peoples in a region. And so that's a little harder to define. What does that mean for us? Because we don't just walk everywhere. We should maybe more. But where could we travel to within a day? Almost anywhere. So maybe restrict that to our cars. Where do we drive kind of in a day's distance, whether it's our commute? What's our circle? What's our bigger field? We're connected in a few ways to the broader fields, if you will. I'm connected with six other uh, Redmond churches and their pastors, and therefore so are you, because we come together to pray every month. We've done prayer gatherings. Thank you, by the way, for those that came to that Thanksgiving Eve prayer gathering to pray for the city. We want to do more of that. But there is a partnership in this city. That's part of our uh, growing region. It's also like our Jerusalem, so that boundary is fuzzy, but it's partnering with others who are doing similar works. We are connected with the Alliance Northwest, which is Alaska, Washington, Oregon. That's a big region, uh, but you can almost get to that region within a day's travel, so maybe we need to consider those partnerships as a big region to join in the same kind of work. We give 5% of all that comes in to support that work through our uh, uh, local field office that's in Portland that helps church plants, that helps revitalize churches, that helps support and care for pastors and leaders, that helps send missionaries. So that's an awesome, more regional ministry. We give another 2.5% to specifically church planting within the Alliance. We are currently supporting two churches, House of the Living God, which is an Egyptian church, an Amharic-speaking congregation in Seattle, and the Living Room Church in Medford, Oregon. That's a little bit a ways away. But Dan and Ashley Gregory, Ashley Gregory grew up in this church. We've sent them, we've helped commission them, and now they are supported by many others, but we are joining in with them because we believe in a regional Judean perspective to Acts 1-8 mission. And so there's more stories and testimonies that can be shared, but that is... Uh, some of a snapshot of what we were doing 
And the Samaria. Jesus said in your Samaria. And this is maybe the most uncertain. Because if we don't understand the history between the Jews and the Samaritans, we won't get this commission for us today. There was hostility between the Jews and Samaritans. They had any number of racial slurs that they would use one to another. There was fighting. There was discord. If, if, you, if you were a Jew and you saw a Samaritan, you'd go out of your way to avoid him or her. And if you had to come into contact with them, uh, you would probably end up slandering them. And that's just one to another. The racial tension that we feel in this culture uh, probably pales in comparison to what they experienced. But if, if anything, it is at least similar. So the, we, Jesus says, go into your Samaria with the hope of the gospel. I am sending you as witnesses to places of hostility, places of historical tension or racial, racial discord. I, I am calling you and sending you to peoples not like you to build bridges with, to share the gospel with. That's our commission to the Samaria. Now, we don't have to look far to find our Samaria. That's not just a place or a locale. Sometimes it's like that. But... Even in our elementary schools in Redmond, an average elementary school has over 35 primary languages spoken in their homes of those children gathering every day. Can you name 30 languages? We don't have to look far to find Samaria, to find those not quite like us. And while that hostility may not be there between some and others of different backgrounds, and cultures and styles, in some cases there is hostility and there is fear. What are you doing to be a missionary, a witness to the Samaria? We have a heart and a growing heart for the Rainier Valley. And it's because we've partnered with a church there, an Alliance Church, Holly Park, and their pastor, Otis Brown, who's become a friend of mine. And I'm so excited to report that we are going to support Holly Park to get Otis Brown full-time released as a missionary to Rainier Valley. Otis is dynamic. You'll meet him soon if you haven't already met him. I've invited him to preach. I don't know when he's coming, but he's one of the supporting churches. Holly Park is one of the supporting churches for the Smith family in their ministry to Zimbabwe. And as I was just meeting with Otis and hearing about his missionary lifestyle, his calling, his third generation pastor now giving himself to the Rainier Valley through Holly Park. He's building relationships with the local elementary school, Martin Luther King, because he sees the systemic oppression and brokenness of so many's lives in that area. And as we don't get in at the elementary level and minister to families and kids, there is no hope by the time they get to high school. There's great ministries also happening along the way in high school too. And we wouldn't say, you know, it's never too late, but he's saying, where does it start? It must start with young families and kids. And so he's investing into the local schools. He's partnered with the, the police of Rainier Valley and they even start, are starting to use Holly Park for some of their functions and their gatherings. And he's starting to do ride-alongs and connections with them to just see the greater work that must be done in the Rainier Valley. It's like a Samaria for Redmond and Union Hill. Not far but a kind of a different world. And so we come alongside him. By the way, uh, Otis works 50 hours a week repairing trucks. So he gets up at 3 a.m. every morning so he can get to his office, that's in quotes for you listening online, at the shop at 4, because his shift starts at 6. And he wants to study and be in the Word. He's got all of his texts open up on his table and he's reading and studying and praying and even as the workers come in some are coming in to see what he's doing and he's communicating with them and he's become like a pastor even there and so then he works a 10-hour shift every day and then from there goes and serves in the schools 
and serves the church and leads a church. And so we're coming alongside Holly Park to try to get Otis full-time released as a missionary. Because we would do this very thing, and we have done, for those going to the ends of the earth across oceans. Why aren't we doing it right here in our Samaria? We've been commissioned. And so we're joining with them. And that leads me to the ends of the earth. The Alliance has such a history to reach to the ends of the earth for the hope of the gospel. It's been the calling to take from our founder, A.B. Simpson, to take the gospel where it has never been preached and it has never been heard. And we are 13 times bigger internationally than we are in the United States because God has been faithful to use this movement to see churches planted amongst the least reached people groups in the world. And so anything that you give to Alliance missions goes to help over a thousand missionaries reach into 70 different people groups around the globe. That's one of our partners, and I strongly encourage you to pray about whether to give to them. That's, that's a trust give. That's a, I don't know where this is going. I'm just giving I could, to a general fund that those in leadership would know how to distribute this. My right hand doesn't know what my left hand is doing. I give generously, and it is good work, and there's awesome testimonies and stories that are coming from those fields. We also have a more personal relationship with the Smith family who we have sent and commissioned to Zimbabwe. They are flying in Tuesday. They'll be here with us. By the way, pray for them as they on Tuesday have an interview with Marketplace Missions. They'll be in Colorado Springs. That's our national headquarters. Trying to be approved as Marketplace missionaries which would bring them into the Alliance family even more fully. And so pray for that to be clear because they are waiting to be recommissioned to Zimbabwe even without a long-term visa. They're still trying to walk by faith and hope and trust that God will do the miracle in the last moment. But they've started a ministry to, to alleviate poverty through farming and sustainable farming that is absolutely amazing. And I look forward to having you hear about it. On the 29th, they will be here with us sharing that and then that next week, We'll have a combined recommissioning service on Saturday evening. A little snapshot of what is to come. So these are just a little bit of what God is already putting in place for us to be like in Acts 1-8 mission-minded church. And there's got to be so much more. But it's a place to begin. It's a place to respond to. Because why? Because of who Jesus is and what He has done. And now He has commissioned us on mission because he's coming again the time is short and the time is urgent they lived that first early church lived with the sense of belief in jesus's promise i am coming back they lived with sacrifice and generosity that would probably put us to shame some were selling their homes and giving to the mission because they took jesus at his word so clearly they may have misunderstood the exact timing but what they didn't misunderstand about the heart level was none of this matters. Ultimately, all that matters is the eternal, because that's where our citizenship is. That's our eternal home. But Jesus said he's coming back, so what do I need this for anyway? Give it to those who do not know him. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. I'm sure if you told that early church that it would be 2,000 years and Jesus still wouldn't have returned, they would have said, no way. That's not how we heard him. So how do we recapture a sense of urgency like they had? Because we don't know the day or the hour, just like we've seen. But yet, do we take Jesus at his word? 
Can we not read the signs of the times when we look into this world? Now, we would be naive to say that we're the first peoples alive today to look into a world and say, the end must be near. Jesus, come back. That's probably been fairly constant throughout the millennia. But we would also be naive not to look into our world and say, is the end not near? Jesus, come back. And there is that right tension of, I'm not sure I'm ready. Maybe just a few more a few more months, a few more years, because I have loved ones and that, are, that do not know you and have not heard or have resisted, or there's just so many. And we pray, Jesus, come and heal and restore and redeem, but we also receive the visions and the understanding that there not, may not be time for those who have rejected him in life when he returns to this earth to then respond. We do not know. We trust him fully, but we better live with a sense of urgency with eyes open, alert, and awake, that our King is coming again. He will advent again. Will we live in such a way that we are proclaimers of hope and life, responsive to any opportunities that may come, knowing we can't change hearts, but the Holy Spirit does and wants to through us. It should go without saying, by the way, that this is like one activity that won't continue for eternity. When we get to heaven, just about every, almost everything else that we get to do continues. Community, learning, worship, celebration, play, feasting, resting. If you think heaven is like a bunch of clouds we're floating on, you have been deceived. God made this world physical and He made it good. That was His intention with the spiritual. He is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Take what we've got here and make it 2.0. Everything increased and heightened and better. So to think we're not going to continue in these same kinds of rhythms of what it means to be like human, except without pain, without loss, without grieving, without suffering. This is our heavenly hope. So we long for it. But what will not continue is we will not be able to live on mission to reach lost people hurting and broken with the hope of the gospel. And I don't know that there will be regret in heaven. That seems like a wrong emotion. But there will be awareness. We will have even sharper minds than ever before. And to think that we won't look back to this blip of life on earth and say, wow, that was short. What was my problem? Why was I so easily distracted by all these other things? Why did I defer so many other things? Lord God, give us an eternal perspective now. We need it. Because you're coming, King Jesus. And we, we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. We already sang it. Is Jesus in heaven singing back to the church? Preach, O church, preach! Go, O church, go! Let's respond to him. A.B. Simpson really believed this. He's the founder of this alliance movement. And some of his perspectives and beliefs have been challenged and critiqued. But his heart and his passion could not have been. He longed for all peoples to come to know Jesus. And how can they know without hearing the hope of the gospel? But he believed, and he said this, quoting uh, from Matthew chapter 24, 14. He said, The work of missions will hasten as nothing else the personal return of the Lord Jesus. Not as if we could determine that time, but Jesus said, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations to all peoples, and then the king will return. 
And we're getting closer to that happening. But there's a lot of work to yet be done. I think it's just increasing as technology and translation and communication increases. It is ramping up. But we've got work to do. So we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. But we also respond to His call. Go, O church, go. Let's pray. Team, come up and lead us as we respond both with meditation, reflection, I hope conviction, and purpose with hope and joy. We go from here as a people of hope on mission because of our ascended King. He is coming back. He will advent. All things in heaven and on earth will be made right. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. And so, Lord, send us as your ambassadors of reconciliation for all that has been accomplished and yet for all that is yet lost. For your glory and our joy. Amen.